Welcome to another episode of the Being and Doing podcast. Uh, today with me is Heather and Keyes, uh, if I'm not pronouncing it wrongly. Uh, and Keys. Yes, mm -hmm. I knew that there would be a wrong pronunciation. And uh, the reason I have Heather on um, is that I got to know her through a channel she created, which is called the Humans of Gestalt. Um, and as I already mentioned before this interview, I felt that she kind of created a community for me and a place of belonging. Uh, and one thing that really resonated uh, with me about Heather from the interviews I listened uh, with her was that she is driven by connection and by a desire for intimacy. And, and I find that really a beautiful quality in a person. Uh, and I really want to explore and learn more from Heather uh, in how uh, she is bringing all of these things uh, about. Uh, and also the, the beautiful thing I am seeing is that she is a creator and that creative power, that power to build things is almost intimidating for me. So I also want to talk about this. So welcome, Heather, uh, and good morning, because I'm here in London and Heather is in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Good morning and thank you. It's uh, really nice to meet you and I'm just yeah. interested about your excitement. So. Um, so I always start the, the interviews with asking what are some words, um, can be nouns or adjectives, that you identify yourself with? <laughs> it's way too early. My brain was like rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> That's not what it's supposed to be. Um, what do I identify with? Probably playfulness, intensity, passion, curiosity, um, love, contact, freedom. Mm. And, and uh, I want to leech on contact. What does contact mean for you? Mm, it's like a meaningful connection, mm. not just a meaningful, full connection, not just a simple, superficial, I know you exist, but like, and I actually know you. And we've had some kind of mutual sense of having touched each other if we meet um and also i mean contact in, in a sense of connection with a wider whole or with the world that that sounds quite full to me um i also wanted to ask you so you are in mexico but you're not originally from mexico so can you just tell us a little bit more how did this come to be? What is the story behind that? Um, yeah, I think that's what I'm working on in therapy right now. <laughs> it's, um, it's like, who am I and why am I here? Um, I'm originally Canadian. I started doing student exchanges when I was 15. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, I think as a way of stimulating myself to avoid frustration and depression and just really yeah more frustration than anything else that I didn't quite know how to manage um so that sort of like pushed me to find novelty mm. uh, and doing student exchanges and learning languages seemed like a better idea than you know 
doing mushrooms and smoking pot, which was pretty much the alternative in the small town that I lived in. Um, so I came to Mexico as an exchange student. Um, I started doing summer courses at the University of Guadalajara. Then I came down to do my final semester. Um, and a lot of that is actually about not fitting in, which is why I kept looking for new places. It was very difficult for me to finish my undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, I just, I can't be in this university anymore. I can't be in this box. I can't do this list of things that I'm supposed to learn that I've been doing since I was in kindergarten. Um, so I ended up designing my own undergraduate program and I ran out of courses that were interesting to me at my university. I probably picked the wrong university to start with, but what, it was what nice that it, uh, I was studying European cultural studies and then I switched it and designed a Latin American cultural studies program. So the bases were social anthropology, but I also took everything from the history of jazz to um, you know, 20th century Latin American literature to political science to history to women's studies courses. Um, and I ran out of stuff at the university and I thought that it was really weird to be studying from a North American, mostly white perspective, what was happening in other countries that I'd been to and that seemed like a lot more expert on their own lives. So I asked to do my last semester in Mexico in exchange, and then I just never went home. Um, mm -hmm. I got, yeah, I didn't even go back to pick up my, my whatever paper, my degree. I was like, yeah, they can just mail it to me, <laughs> send it to my mom's house. Um, and that was 20 years ago. So since then, you know, there was a very short series of long and rather dramatic and tumultuous relationships and a large need to be in therapy. And they were just like, if you're gonna keep coming to therapy, why don't you just make a degree of it and study therapy? So I did my master's. So I was like a professionalized patient, basically. I know the um, feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because my undergraduate was not in psychology. It was not in clinical psychology. It was not in counseling. It wasn't even in education. So, I mean, the problem is that it's difficult to go home when my credentials didn't match up with professional credentials in the U.S. Or, I mean, in Canada. Like, I couldn't go anywhere easily with the combination of degrees that I have. So I'm really making the most of what I can do on the Internet and from Mexico in Mexico. I mean, this is one impression of me. You are just somehow an incredible remodeler of your surrounding. It, it just feels to me like, I don't know, that's just my impressions that you have this gravity. And whenever you, wherever you're put, you're just really influencing everything around you. I don't know. That's just like, I can't, uh, I don't know you. I have not been close to you. It's just that this is my impression from what you're saying. And I'm just curious. Um, and also I had a question there with uh, you said seeking novelty. Um, my um, personal um, uh, experience with seeking novelty is also like uh, seeking safety. Um, and somehow is, is that experience more for you? Like kind of, I want um, input um, and a place where I feel I can be fully expressed 
or it's a place of avoidance? I mean, or both? Well, I mean, there, there's a few questions in there, so maybe there's a few answers. So just about my influencing my surroundings, there's a few things there. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is I'm an only child, so I'm used to structuring the world around myself. Mm. I didn't realize that siblings existed and mattered in people's lives for many years. I was like, oh, you take into account the other people. Got it. <laughs> I didn't do that well. Um, and that, I mean, that's really like I'm describing a sense of entitlement. And it's a sense of entitlement that I had not only as an only child, but as a white, blue eyed Anglo North American. Mm. Like, I'm just used to walking into places and being able to do whatever I want with that. I mean, that's kind of the basis for colonialism and settlements. And that's, that's what I come from. And I'm realizing over the past couple of years, I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe that's the not the best way to carry myself into new situations. So I'm learning to measure how much of an impact I choose to have on my surroundings too. Um, and that's, I mean, you, you kind of give me an option between like, what was it like avoidance and a need to be heard or have influence. Um, I think any kind of move, it, it has those two elements. Um, and I learned that in theater. I mean, anytime you're making an entrance, you're coming from somewhere. And so that matters. And you're also going towards something. I mean, there is a motivation, there is an interest that's drawing you forward. Um, and you can't have any kind of movement without either of those. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, there's always, there's a push and then there's a draw. Mm. So that's, I, I try to be aware and not just be motivated by one, because if I'm just motivated you know, by a push away from something, that's when, you know, people run out into traffic because they're not aware of where they're going. Yeah. Um, I would not like to do that. Yeah, obviously. So yes. I try to be mindful of what I'm moving into, but also where I'm coming from. Yeah. And there, there's one important thing you are saying about the entitlement, because I had actually recently had these feelings, again, coming from a country that is a kind of a third world country war stricken and all of these kind of things i have sometimes moments like you have just not been taught to take space and how will i almost like how will i ever learn to do this kind of feeling and now that you're crying and almost like jealousy to somehow people who have just been born with that with that sense but then what i really appreciate when um you actually ask people where they're coming from so i feel like the difference between having an absolute sense of entitlement and what you are doing is that you are sensitive to other realities while while like this kind of absolutism would not have that sensitivity so maybe correct me if i'm wrong but is that what you are experiencing no, no. I mean, I, I hold my entitlement on a leash. Like, yeah. it, it, it just wants to walk in and own the room because that's what I was, you know, basically taught that I have a right to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I've learned how to pull that back. And I really like the Gestalt and sort of Buddhist principle of mm -hmm. 
absolutely not knowing. And I just hold my awareness that I don't know anything about where I am, who I'm talking to. And there's a lot of things that I really don't know at all about myself. Um, so I, I've learned to check any assumptions about knowing things. And I, I've learned that I look much less ignorant when I actually just ask. Yes. So that's it's interesting what you said also about not having been sort of raised or born into that sense of entitlement. I mean, my my grandmother, you know, she's still alive and kicking, and she was an immigrant from England. She came over to Canada, but she brought that sense of, you know, colonial entitlement with her. And it's just such a part of how I know her. That's really kind of where I feel like I got it. It's not like there was no sense of coming up from below as an immigrant. It's just, uh, all right, I've come to the colonies kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I've, the more years pass, because I was sort of raised with her and my mom for about seven years. Um, we lived in the same house. And like when I get some distance and then I come back and I see my grandmother again, it's like, whoa, some of the things, it's like, ah, okay, I know that's where I come from, and that's not how I live my life these days. Yeah, yeah, and actually there's this thing about asking questions, that's what perspired for me in, in the interviews you have done, because I felt you as a space holder, like I didn't see Heather in the interview, which was beautiful because sometimes I love the interviews to be this kind of exchange. And sometimes I feel like maybe I'm aggressing a little bit. But when I saw the interviews that you have done, it was just this beautiful space holding for people and anything could come out. It was almost like a therapy room. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And actually, that that was one of my questions for you: is um, how difficult for you was to learn to hold this space, or is that something that you are naturally able to do? Um, so, can, like, is there, is there, can you verbalize basically um, how? How is that process uh, yeah, looking yeah. for I, you? Yeah. I'm, I'm very aware of what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I say to the people before I sleep, I say, all right, you know, we have a great chat and I'm really animated. And then I say, and during the interview, I'm going to hold back because my interest is actually just holding the space for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I really, I don't have any need to be on 250 YouTube videos. I, mm-hmm. I I'm really not particularly interested in exposure of my person. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I have no problem being seen, but I really don't have that hunger. Um, I can be very intense and I know that I have presence when I walk into a room, I'm aware that I take up space, that I think quickly, that I make noise. Um, but it's not, I don't need anybody else to necessarily see that. Like that does not feed me. Um, so it's like, it's not an ego. It's not a narcissistic thing. It's just me allowing myself to walk into a room the way I am. 
And I can fold that up and put it aside because I'm also just as intensely interested in other people. Yeah. And one skill that I have developed is, is hiding in plain sight. Um, like if I organize a conference or I'm doing an event, um, I'll be literally sitting in the middle of the event and like, you know, 500 people are walking in circles and almost every single one of them I will have exchanged an email with or I'll know who they are. Um, but I'm not really there. I'm just like sitting in the middle and things are kind of spinning. And so it's the same thing with the interviews. It's like, yeah, I'm here. And I kind of go back and it's like, you're there. Yeah. I mean, that that for me was almost like with each interview, I'm learning something kind of. And, and actually, I also wanted to ask you about the Gestalt and, and your involvement in Gestalt. So first of all, for people who might not know, uh, let's try to say what Gestalt is and then what Gestalt is for you. Okay. Um, so Gestalt psychotherapy, not Gestalt psychology. Um, it's a humanistic existential strain, I guess you could say, of psychotherapeutic practice. Um, it's more dialogical, it's relational, it's embodied. Um, it's not an old set school, it's very much evolving and developing uh, and has a lot of really interesting and deep social implications and applications. Um, I mean, it's a, definitely an, an international, very much alive and kicking kind of school. A lot of people get the impression, you know, it almost died in the 60s and is just kind of on life support. Um, but that's really not the case. Um, and, and for me, um, just something that you'd said towards, you know, at the beginning before you started recording this, Gestalt for me has been finding a community. It's been finding like a home and a container. Because um, I used to often have that sense of sort of outgrowing things. Not in, not in a really pretentious way, but it's just like, okay, now I have interests which don't fit into this degree or into this category. And why can't I take this course too? Or why can't I also do it in this language or whatever? Um, but Gestalt is really elastic. Like, because it's phenomenological, it's about dealing with what is and not having like a preconceived set of limits about what that can or can't be. I mean, there are ethical boundaries. Some people don't know that, but there are. There are ethical boundaries. There are limits in the sense of relationship. Um, and yet it's flexible enough that in the Gestalt community, um, not in the therapy context, but in the, in the community of practitioners, I have found friends and mentors and colleagues and the depth of relationship um, that I've been able to construct with people who I've actually spent very little time with physically. Um, the depth of connection coming back to that, I guess, has been unlike anything I've ever found anywhere else. Yeah, and when you say also phenomenological, because many people I interviewed use the word, I don't think it's very common thing to say. So what do you, what do you mean by phenomenological? Um, in a really basic sense, because I don't have, you know, the references in the brain right now, um, 
it, it is literally dealing with a phenomenon that emerges in this moment between us in the present um, and noticing that on as many levels as possible. I mean, like there's a thing and then this thing has boundaries and edges, but there's always more and more and more of that phenomenon in the room mm -hmm. that is just outside of awareness. And so for me, Gestalt is about deepening our awareness of the ongoing and current phenomena. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm here. Oh, but I didn't realize that also has to do with, you know, different layers of time and space from my story, from your story, from the social context where we are. I mean, there's, Gestalt is based on a phenomenological field. Mm -hmm. So it's not limited. It's not literal just here and now you and me. It's and, 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 and it's really expansive. Mm -hmm. Actually, what I wanted to ask you uh, is, what is your view of the field? How do you conceptualize the field? Uh, because that's a very interesting concept for me. And it's a beautiful thing that it really feels that it holds all of us somehow. Uh, that's my experience. But I guess it can be different things for different people. So I'm curious, what does it mean for you? Um, yeah, this is more of a personal than like a gestalty theory kind of answer, I guess. Um, for me, the field, I guess I come back more than like a flat three-dimensional like field with grass and cows kind of stuff. I see um, Stan Groff talks about um, holographic mind and holographic imaging. Um, where there are just so many dense layers. Um, so I see I, I see a field as a holographic sort of intertwined multi-level, really complex structure. Um, and it, I mean there's there's layers, there's vertical layers, there's parallel horizontal threads, and it's like snakes and ladders. There's all kinds of different diagonal ways to to go through dimensions. Um, and I mean, it's just, it's a series of, of forces and some of those layers are historical, some of them are cultural, um, and just all of the different aspects of field that you can have as a human being, they're also replicated on levels of system. Um, and just for me, the question of working or being in the field is always a question of awareness. I mean, everything is always out there. That's it. Nothing ever goes away. It's like the laws of physics, you know, it's never destroyed. Anything that's ever been created is just being transformed continually. The question is, you know, unfortunately, we have such limited awareness and such limited systems of perception. It's, it's like a challenge to be constantly expanding our awareness of levels of field and not just in a forward direction, not just on a horizontal plane, like expanding 360 degrees, so. And actually I have to say that multidimensionality of the field is what really liberated me. And I love about Gestalt that absolute creative component. And I'm curious, was that something that you discovered in Gestalt or it was something you, 
you kind of had an inborn. I, I would guess you already had it by the fact that you were organizing your studies the way you wanted them to be. But um, yeah, I'm just curious. Where well, I mean, I was, I was taught from grade four that I could learn the way I wanted to learn. Mm. Um, when you say whether, you know, am I born with this? I mean, I, I was tested and identified as a gifted child and that doesn't go away. It's, it's like a, a form of neurodiversity. Um, so my brain has not, you know, normalized with age. <laughs> if anything, it's gotten weirder, a little bit more diverse. Um, so, I mean, I came back to the idea of giftedness as neurodiversity um, in my mid-30s. And so I've been sitting with that again for the past, you know, five or six years. And it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense because this is the starting point of how my brain works. Mm. And um, I was educated in a way that made that okay. Instead of having that like flattened and normalized out of me, I was mm. taught in a student-led, creative, investigative, um, inquiry-based kind of model uh, and it was a gifted education that came from the George Brown school and George Brown was a student of Fritz Perls in Esalen so basically the way I was taught was gestalt pedagogy and I didn't know that um, for many years but coming into gestalt felt like home um, because there was an academic space that was also creative and was not just based on learning by rote um, and I mean, my previous career attempt was basically to get into theater, but I realized that had, you know, there were, it was like boxes. And it's like, eh. I know there are really creative ways to, you know, break theater out and do things, but I was missing something more immediately human and real and less elaborated. Um, so I, flipped more into the social anthropology part and like learning about people like I really had to learn social skills I really had to understand how people work it just did not come naturally to me um, and so social anthropology gave me like some cues to understand how humans and society work because um, we're really messed up <laughs> really complicated and we do weird things as a species um, and then I came back to being like, oh, my person. Okay, now I'm getting into my person. And then I can sort of go full circle and be out there with other people. So I'm like, oh, okay. That was a useful loop. Yeah. And I'm curious there is, what is somehow the most difficult thing about humanity that you're struggling to accept? Um, I mean, the word that just pops up again is entitlement. Mm. Like just the way that we are inherently able to spin things around and center it around ourselves and our immediate wants that aren't even needs. Um, and that almost malicious sense of potential, mm. just being like, oh, look what I can do. And then pushing how far I can go and what I can do without hitting an ethical boundary. 
and just some of the things that are done because we can without a sense of impact or deeper moral reasoning it's like yeah okay you can do that but why would you yeah yeah i mean it's also something that i have to say i've been struggling with and and i'm curious um what is also what is always a trigger for me is when from that sense of entitlement comes almost like um blindness for everything else and uh, and also the sad part is like how much richness is lost there and and there's one thing that i wanted to ask you basically when you say boundaries uh, within uh, the theater um the richness that gestalts offer uh is offering uh in in experience and in awareness is that something that again you have deepened uh with years uh or is it something that you know was just kind of expressed but was always present mm, i don't know um <laughs> I, I think i'm not getting shallower as i get a little bit older so I mean, I, I do see awareness as kind of like an, an unavoidable expansion process. Like, it's difficult to be less aware than I was last year or last month or yesterday. I mean, it's like once something new has been integrated, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's still there. Um, yeah. That, that but, makes sense. Yeah. That up. But I mean, there, there is that thing which is like willful ignorance. Um, and, and I mean, that's where awareness of human potential. If, if I am willfully ignorant of my potential to do harm, I mean, that's like, that's that edge between playful existentialism, where it's like radical acceptance of everything is possible, and sociopaths, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, I know there are rules, and I just don't care. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, and, and actually it frames a little bit of my thinking, I have to say, is I always feel like the boundaries are needed and how to play within the boundaries. And I guess that was maybe even a part of a question. How do you play within boundaries? Um, I become a geek and I sign up for a master's in bioethics. <laughs> I want somebody to teach me about boundaries and ethics and moral philosophy. Um, and so I signed up for a master's in bioethics. Um, I was like, there's, there's a lot more to this. And I, I want to learn how to think um, about, yeah, moral reasoning, hmm. basically. And that, I mean, critical thinking and moral reasoning, there are two giant holes in the curriculum of almost every school. Um, a lot of, you know, countries' education systems, including the Mexican, um, sort of use like a, a dogma from some kind of religion as a value system and like stuff that into the education system. But I'm like, that's not, that's not moral reasoning. That's not actual, you know, philosophy that's that's dogma and that's religion and that's really cool it's got some really good principles except it's determined and it's not about using that critical thinking to 
allow the individual to go through the process and come to the conclusion. Um, it's just telling them what is. So I have a problem with people not being taught or not being allowed to learn how to think and reason for themselves. And, and there, do you actually believe as a species, we, by knowing what you know about people, that we can get to a more uh, normative societal way of having critical thinking as part of our culture? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't have a lot of faith. Yeah, you know, power corrupts and capitalism is not doing us any major favors. I mean, because it just breeds that sense of blind entitlement mm -hmm. and that absence of a sense of consequences and the individualism just just wipes out the awareness of being part of a larger whole. Mm -hmm. yes. So, I mean, I hopefully will be able to engage in processes of social awareness it, but I, i'm i'm aware of being a very small being yeah. Um, so yeah I, I don't know if i have that much faith in a bunch of ants to be able to affect large systemic change and this is also like not to be pessimistic it's more just to understand yeah how we how what's also the limit of the human animal let's say and i would also like to ask you um around success what was the first time you were aware of this concept that just kind of was press starting to be present in your life if at all um i mean success like any, you know, good kindergarten student was usually reflected like on a report card initially. Um, my father was a teacher and he very much wanted, you know, like, here's the paper, I'm successful kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, he had a little checklist of, you know, things I was going to do in my life, most of which I chose not to do. <laughs> um, so that that's like a, a standard. Um, but my sense of success, this is kind of sounding more like Maslow, it was about having experiences of self-realization. Um, I mean, the, there, there was a summer, I was 16, I had uh, surgery for scoliosis on my spine, and I spent three months basically in a body cast. I say that was like my Frida Kahlo period. Um, but then I literally came out of my shell and I started a theater company and it was, you know, very small. It was like a tiny high school project. I was 16, but just seeing something that I had started, created, developed and closed, um, that was a sense of success because it was a sense of meaningful achievement. It was like that whole process of wanting and going out and making it happen, feeling satisfied and letting it go, which is like a gestalt cycle of experience. Mm -hmm. um, and and this, so I think, yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, um, the letting it go part, I feel that is some sometimes 
part that stops us from experiencing a new cycle. Um, and how easy or difficult is that part for you? I'm pretty good at letting go. Pretty good at detachment and dissociation. <laughs> no, not not in a pathological way, but in 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 like a realizing that things end. I, I mean, I'm very aware of that. I mm -hmm. I say, you know, I'm definitely a mortalist in the sense that I don't expect anything to continue in perpetuity. Um, I mean, my father started dying when I was 13. He died when I was 17. So I was very aware of death processes um, in a pretty immediate way. Um, and I'm, you know, I've lost a daughter to leukemia. So I guess, you know, your cancer research, co-cancer research, that would be a great thing. Yeah. But, you know, if it's not there, there is an end to life. And I mean, that must mean that there's obviously an end to any smaller, less significant unit of life, right? So that's just the way it goes. And I'm very much in sort of that Buddhist principle of, okay, I guess this is perfect the way it is. So things start and things end. And my, you know, willful child perspective of being like, but I don't want to go. Well, yeah, the party's over. So we're leaving. <laughs> that's, that's the way it goes. Mm. And I, I've learned to be much more graceful about that. Um, and not get into the suffering part you know pain of ending and loss and grief is is definitely very real um and I, i've learned to sort of let go and lean into that and go down that water slide um because it's much more painful going down a water slide and trying to hold on to the top of it at the same time yeah. um so just i mean letting what is a natural process happening and not putting up so much resistance as if my opinion, excuse me, my opinion or my will mattered above the nature of that process. And um, I'm curious there for you, the difference between the pain and suffering. Um, it's I, I almost as if inside of me, these two are not separated yet. And I'm wondering, for you, was there a process of really understanding where I'm just accepting all this overwhelm of the pain and where I'm adding myself to it as well? Um, and like, can you feel that inside of you? Can you separate it? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, a Buddhist example, like, I was like, I'm hearing Steve Zam and Eva Gold talking about this because I interpreted for them at a conference. And they, the Buddhist idea is the second arrow. I mean, it's fine, you know, if you get hit by an arrow, okay, that's pain. But if you reach out and grab a second arrow and stick it into yourself, I mean, that's suffering. That is like a choice that nobody is making you go through. Um, and it, it's really, it's sort of, there has to be a radical acceptance of what is. It's just okay. And, and there's, there's a time and a place for that wanting to influence or change. Um, because in the wrong time and place, that's just 
it's like a futile suffering resistance to what is and what is going to be whether you want it or not mm. um so that's where like the ability to recognize sort of humbly and just let go of the fights that are not going to go anywhere it's like they talk about picking your battles yes and it's like no not this battle not that one either put that one back that kind of thing it's like okay so really engaging selectively um in any kind of resistance in my life is kind of how i go through it it's like yeah this fight is not worth it i could just be in this and find some pleasure over here mm, yes. so. and actually i'm curious in that sometimes even the resistance is what is so uh i'm curious basically what's that what is it over years that allow you the wisdom to understand what you can control and where that resistance is really to be um acted upon and what is it's really kind of this is the only way out is letting go somehow well, i mean i think part of it is understanding like actually having a a sense of my being and just being like yeah this is me you know this is the force that's coming in i'm not realistically going to be able to do much there and separating my not liking it or my not wanting it or my value judgment that this sucks um and realizing it's going to happen whether i want it to or not and i mean i i can allow things to happen and i don't mean like i control them i mean i can allow them to come through me and just be like okay i'm not this is not pleasure i'm not enjoying this but then i just peel off the layers of value judgment and just come down to things as an experience not one that i would have chosen probably not one that i sought um but again just sort of being with okay this is what it is mm-hmm. and just to go a little bit of something that kind of came to my mind is that you said in what in the in one of the interviews that you're an intimacy addict and it's the first time i've heard that uh verbalized and i realized oh i had <laughs> yeah. something like this and i am i'm i'm curious because almost for me these kind of conversations are kind of almost the only kind of conversation i would like to have <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh and i i'm curious um do you think that is sometimes an expression of something internally that hasn't been heard uh in i don't i mean i don't know you can you can fill it in <laughs> Mm-hmm. No, uh, for me, I wouldn't say it's an intimacy addiction. I mean, I make that joke because uh, uh-huh. it's a way of it, it's a simple way of laughing off um what Dubrovsky calls interpersonal overexcitabilities <laughs> or hyperexcitabilities, which just means I can be really 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 interested in people. Mm-hmm. Um and that can be a little weird to some yeah. people. <laughs> 
I so I have to find socially acceptable ways to be as interested as I am in people. Um, and I, I mean, I think that definitely has application as a psychotherapist. Like, that's, that's actually my job is to be interested in the person that I'm with on a very deep level that most people in their lives are not. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a skill set to be able to focus on the person who's in front of me and actually care about them and try to take them in and not have any expectations of who they have to be or what I want from them. Did you sometimes, do you sometimes have this feeling of, if I could, I would like to listen to the story of every single person of, on earth because there is so much richness uh, there. And obviously we are time and I don't know what else limited, but is that like, is that level of curiosity that's present inside of you? Um, I guess I would say I don't, I don't have the ambition to listen to all of them. I'm kind of more yes, realistic of about my time on earth. Of course, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I guess the answer for me would be, yes, I can imagine myself making the choice to listen to people and their stories pretty much for the rest of my life in some shape. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine creating a, a project or doing something that is disconnected from you know the expressions and the needs of the people i'm working with or am surrounded by like i guess it's a it's a switch from that sense of individualist entitlement where you know i walk in and i'm some kind of authority it's like no, my, my starting place and probably my major practice is listening to other people. And I mean, the way that I think, and I guess the way that I am learning to work is, you know, I'm here with these people and then I see an opportunity to like put some kind of structure out there for a next step. And I'm not interested in being like the one who runs out and is like, look at this new thing that I built. I'm interested in the people being like, oh, look, we can walk forward on this. Mm. And then, you know, we're standing on the new thing. It's like, oh, so where can we go from here? And if somebody else builds a new thing, that's awesome. But if I get an idea and I can be like, oh, look, we can go over here now and do this. I'll put some structure just because I can see it somehow. Um, and then if people go, that's great. And I, I'm really not attached to the proposals that I put out. Um, I enjoy my own thinking processes. Like I do have that enjoyment of myself, um, but I'm much more interested in whatever resonates, you know, with the people that I'm with. It's, it, it's, it's kind of odd. Like I, I don't need to do it for me. It's not disconnected from the people around me. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's not odd. It's almost like the level of, authority and the kind of authority I always imagined to have is where the authority is almost like natural it's not imposed you feel mm -hmm. kind of a sense that there is someone who has a knowledge in a certain area which doesn't mean that it has a whole awareness 
Yeah. And in, in a way, the beauty for me in what you're explaining is that you don't take power away from people. Um, and, and that's what, like, my next question is basically there is, um, if you are to imagine a leader, uh, what are the qualities of a good leader for you? Um, I was talking with Carol Brockman about this the other day. Um, she's like have you heard about the bird study i was like nope so just talking about you know the bunch of birds that are flying and there's you know just a, a lead bird which emerges you know there's no like democratic process it's not like it's born into the role um lead bird comes out takes the hit from the air for a while you know breaks the ground or the air i guess for the other birds and then it just drops back and then another bird leads and then it drops back and I, I like that idea. It makes sense. It's, you know, it's not like noble martyrdom for the bird that, you know, is up front all the time until it burns itself out and dies. And it, it's that like taking and letting go and coming up and letting go. I really like that metaphor. And it almost like just to build on top is that you will enter into different ecosystems and different birds will be adapted to lead in that particular one. So mm -hmm. it's almost insensible to have always the same leader. Um, so I, I quite like that. This is really beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I, I liked it because they're, I mean, they're in the air. You don't need stuff. Like they don't need, they don't even have a nest. I mean, it is a flying bird suspended in the air. So it's really just a process among that group mm. um, dealing with the really immediate elements. And it's not about creating really elaborate structures mm -hmm. and it all just falls apart. Like the birds land and then none of that, it's not recorded. It's not like, it doesn't transcend. It doesn't stay with them. And it doesn't mean that when the birds land, oh, well, you know, your leadership, blah, 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 blah. And that bird doesn't stay the leader. It's like, you just land and then you're all birds. Yeah. 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 That that's, I love it. It's, it's kind of, uh, a, a idealistic world I always had in my mind, but was never like verbalized in such a nice way. Um, well, I, I don't know. I don't actually know much about German politics at all, but it kind of sounds like Angela Merkel and Pepe Mujica, who is the president of Uruguay, who they're like, yeah, you know, I was president or I was chancellor. No, I'm not. It's like, now I'm going to the grocery store. I was like, oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and actually, like I see that in many organizations is sometimes that the people that lead me best are just my peers because they are most adapted at the particular moment to what I need. So, yeah, I, I understand. And and I a lot about you and um, even the channel is called Humans of Gestalt is about humanity and and you bring the human in uh, authority figures even and i really uh, am curious what do you what was an what was the impact for you on maybe meeting some of your heroes for the first time if if there was if that was the case um, yeah i don't have any, i don't have any heroes that's part of the problem that's like i i'm a very sort of horizontal structure person um I mean, I, I know at the end of the day that they're all just people and they go home and, they, you know, they have dinner, they fall asleep, they wake up, you know. Um, 
I can be very respectful, but I'm definitely not intimidated or impressed very easily. I mean, I can really appreciate in that sense. I am impressed, mm-hmm. um, but not intimidated. I mean, yeah. they're, they're living their own life. There's no sense of comparison or, or competition. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think there's a Mexican word, which I learned, it's supposed to be an insult, but for me, it's just like an adjective. It's igualada, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, one who puts herself on the level of. um, So that's always just kind of been me. I mean, as a child, I was socialized around adults. So it's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, one of, and I didn't realize that I was supposed to be less than or below somehow. So I'm a little slow sometimes in realizing that there's supposed to be a social hierarchy that I'm jumping or something. I mean, I think that's actually quite beautiful because it's just opens the other person to express another part where, which would not necessarily be expressed. So I, I, I quite, yeah, I quite like the fact that it's un, it's not limiting you uh, into um into reaching out in a way because you're not actually reaching out towards something bigger you're you're reaching out to something that you feel like it's there um and actually that inspired me so that's why uh, we're having this conversation it's beautiful to see where is all of this coming from um and i i was curious um uh what are the people that really informed your visions of, in this context, success, but we can talk about all these concepts. We talk about leadership or um, education or whatever you can put into that bracket. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the one person who comes to mind is someone who I consider a friend, even though we had a very brief and very intense friendship before he died uh, was Alan Schwartz, who was a Gestalt therapist from the US. Um, But he told me, you know, he's like, I've lived about five lifetimes in one. And I mean, that's the joy of having friends in their 80s. Like, they just kind of look at you and go, yeah, kid, you'll learn. (laughs) And that's nice. It, it sort of takes away that seriousness of I'm being an adult now and this is this is real. It's like, yeah, no. He's like, yeah, you'll look back on this in 30 years if you're lucky and it'll just be another one of those phases that comes and goes. Um, because, I mean, he went through everything from the Second World War to Korea to being a professor to being, you know, a chicken farmer. <laughs> so it's like, okay, Um And I mean, he was, in many of our conversations, it was just about accepting that anything that I'm living in or believing in or creating in a given moment is an illusion and that it's a trick. If I believe it, I get stuck in it. Um, And so it's just really that sort of radical freedom of stepping outside of whatever I'm telling myself is real because that's narrowed. and there's a really cool scene in a movie called Divergent, um, mm-hmm. where it's the, one of the, the characters, she's going through like these tests yeah. and they 
basically she gets convinced that she's in a box which is filling with water and then she just decides that the box isn't real and she pokes her finger through it and it, it explodes yeah. so i mean i really like those kinds of expressions of that breaking the illusion like the truman show and um i just lost divergent is another one of those movies the matrix yeah it's just like being free of those constructs and understanding them as illusions yeah that that comes and that that was all sort of brought together in my conversations with alan that's amazing. Now you are again conceptualizing something for me because when I watched Divergent, I just felt like her. I didn't have that concept that you're describing now, but I mm -hmm. just felt like, yes, that I'm doing constantly. I'm constantly poking the water mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. constantly peeling off the layers of, of illusion I have been exposed to or created in myself. But I'm, I'm curious when you say illusion, what is that conceptually for you? What What is it that we are having an illusion about? Is it just because we have a limited attention capabilities? So we can only focus and create an image of, of like a limited world? Or what is it underlying that you think is creating this illusion? Yeah, I, I think you answered that basically. I think it's our limitations. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there was another movie, uh, it's what the bleep do you know, um, it talked about our perception and our understanding as limited and it gives the example of, you know, when the Spanish ships were sailing towards the coast um, in the Americas, um, just that some of the, the theory, the neuro, the neurobiology theory or whatever, is that mm, the natives probably only saw waves because they couldn't conceptualize ship. And I, when I was little, I used to like lie down and look up at the clouds and just be like, I bet there's like so much stuff up there that I just can't see because I can't get my brain around it. And I used to imagine that there were like huge dragons flying around in the sky, just sort of in a different layer of reality that wasn't quite able to access yet. And so the the illusion for me is just the idea of a limit. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it's really sort of the Truman Show idea of the bounds of our reality are illusions and there are ways to go through them. And that's sort of like an expansion of consciousness experience. Yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds really hippie. <laughs> I, I, I know. And that's why I, and I somehow it resonates. But then it always pulls me back into something for me as a scientist as like, um, I don't know if the fact I'm a scientist is a limitation, or it just kind of puts me to know what are the current level of limitations we are aware of. I think I think of scientists like in a lab with all kinds of really fancy equipment, like poking holes in the illusionary walls of like, oh, you thought this was the smartest, smallest particle of matter? Well, look, and they yeah. find another one. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's just uh, I still as being part of the science, I still see a certain level of boundedness. 
and I actually talked uh, with Peter Philipson, and then we I actually asked the question like, what is truth for you, or what is reality for you, and and this for me is like again, where do you have um, and he answered it in, in kind of relativistic manners. It's like that there is a, always a reference points from which we are seeing the reality. But I'm curious, for, for example, for you, how do you conceptualize reality that we are all sharing, which to some extent is the same for all of us, but then in so many ways, it's completely different. Yeah, I... I... I mean, hey, there's a surprise. I agree with Peter in the sense that it, it is relative and it depends on your reference point and your context and um, all of the filters that are put on that. I mean, things that we are able or unable to perceive, um, comprehend or not comprehend. Um, and I mean, those can be anything from biological limitations, um, neurological predisposition to to see or hear things in a certain way. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, it's just a really unique combination of factors that create what an individual can perceive as reality in a given moment. Yeah, and I was uh, curious from your explorations for with so many different minds. Um, I'm curious, how did that form your perception of, or maybe let's put it like this, who was the most, in a way, present to present moment aware person that you have act, interacted with? Yeah, I've realized that I can't do that. I can't... Um... I can't like put a sticker on somebody and be like, yeah, you're the most this. It's yes, just, yeah. just really just respecting that everybody has such a unique configuration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and more than ranking the people that I'm meeting, it's just respecting that whole of their experience and their perception and their values. Um, I mean, sometimes it's really easy to see, like I'm sure it's very easy to see my own blind spots and my shortcomings if you listen to what I say and don't say in this interview. Um, I mean, I see that for the people that I interview, mm -hmm. um, but I can't say that, you know, they're more or less. I can just say, okay, right now this was. Yes. Because, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm walking into in their lives. I don't know what moment they're in. I don't know where else they are. Um, most of them are people I don't even know at this point. Like, I'm interviewing complete strangers. Um, so, I, I mean, I really can't say. I can know that certain people resonate with me. Um, but I usually assume that's just as much about myself as it is about them. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people have a very definite, clear presence. And so, you know, sometimes I reach out and I'm like, hey, can we have another conversation? I just kind of didn't feel like I finished meeting you. And that's been really nice. Like I've met some people and we have enough energy to go forward on some projects and things like that. So 
yeah I, I mean that that's answers. actually from now from a like an interviewer to an interviewer point of view um I sometimes feel uh that exactly as you say I expose myself by what I say or what I by what I don't say and is there sometimes in you a slight fear of how many of the blind spots will actually be revealed not to the other people only but when you go back to yourself as well oh yeah yep um actually just this week i emailed someone i had just interviewed someone i just met for the first time and i said look i realize there's something that i did not ask you i said did as an interviewer should I have asked you this? Was it your expectation? It's like, I didn't, I didn't know if I'd read it properly. Um, but it turns out it was okay. But it, I mean, I, I'm very aware that there are topics that are less comfortable for me. Sometimes, you know, somebody brings it in a room and it's like, oh, all right, I'm going to learn how to talk about this. And lately, sometimes it's been around issues of race. And so I feel very white and I feel very ignorant and I don't know how to talk about because I've always been in that privileged position where I don't have to. Yeah. Um, but I'm learning. Yeah. I mean, that's also a funny thing about race because for me, I would love to ask people of any color, ethnicity or whatever different sta status you, you want to imagine is to always ask this question of what is it that being with this particular characteristic has brought into your life but the funny thing is i feel excluded like if you would see me i'm white and i would never kind of um be seen as a different and then i i almost see feel like my experience is not talked about so it's sometimes not even about race and i for example what i have an experience there is almost like um i'm not the different race but no one asks me like um how is it to live a war because somehow just no one wants to know about this and uh and and, and for me that's a really beautiful thing what you are doing in in the podcast is actually just being very gentle in open and curious and it to me at least never feels intrusive so i've I also feel, and I'm sorry, this is more of a monologue. It's it's also like just to give you the respect, basically, because uh, I feel what you're doing is really kind of changing the way we talk about difficult topics. Um, and it feels like there is more ease because you're just curious. And, and I want to come back to that curiosity. Um, did that feel like a liberation for you? Was it something that was always present? Or was it something, again, that kind of was slowly, slowly building uh, and was able to express more and more over time? Yeah, there's, there's a few answers in there, again. Um, the curiosity was there. I've had to learn how to be curious in a better way <laughs> and i mean that really has involved educating myself and informing myself um, around issues of 
bias and prejudice and you know unconscious systemic structures that I'm part of um, and learning and understanding you know the the impact of my own identity so there's been this process of identity development I didn't realize that I was white. I didn't realize what that meant. I didn't realize a lot of things about issues of race, class, gender, sexuality. Um, so I've, I've been learning about that. Um, so my curiosity comes from a more self-aware place. Like I understand who I am as a person who's asking these things mm -hmm. um, and that it makes a difference to ask something, you know, as an apparently heterosexual cisgender white person, mm -hmm. it makes a difference to ask questions in English as a native speaker. I mean, there, there are always, there, there's relation there. There is a starting point. I'm not some kind of universal every woman. Um, there are very specific things about my identity as an asker that really influence how the conversation goes. Um, so being aware of my biases and my prejudices coming into a conversation, I, I've been learning to hold those back so I can like take them apart. And I, and I did have a conversation the other day where I realized I had not assumed that the person that I was talking to was straight. I just completely did not have an assumption about the sexual orientation of the person I was meeting. And that made me realize that until that point, some part of me had always assumed that the person was going to be straight. And so I'm like, wow, I'm really carrying heteronormativity around with me. And I'm really carrying a whole set of assumptions and biases into every conversation. Um, so I, I'm really trying to come in with nothing, but that's not possible. Yeah. I mean, that's also just being aware of what I do come in with. I'm also curious there. I'm always having this um, question of if I am assuming something about you, which might not be true, but it does not come from a place of malice. So let's say I meet you, Heather, white woman, blah, blah, blah. And maybe my underlying assumption is you have a certain level of wealth, um, very plainly. But then I asked, <laughs> Surprise, uh, yeah, no. I know, I know, but, but let's say th that is my assumption. And then I ask you, do you have a certain level of wealth? And you say yes or no. Um, then I feel like, I feel like if we are checking our assumptions, I don't know if it's wrong to have these biases. And, and this is something I'm always so, so I'm always wondering, maybe sometimes we put such a heaviness on the conversation by constantly beating ourselves for having those assumptions, but somehow wouldn't it be just a little bit easier for all of us if, like, do you have an assumption? Just check it with me. It's okay. 
if you yes, just ask exactly exactly so i'm wondering did it change for you what when you went through understanding uh your personal biases what did it change for you in the way you interview people uh, or in the way you ask questions and what questions did you ask where you felt you are making an assumption no i mean i i realized that any question it's just like it's layers on layers of layers um just anything i ask has assumptions behind it yeah um and i just i have to constantly remind myself of my complete and utter ignorance like i don't know but it's not just a, it's not a personal failing if we have assumptions mm -hmm. i mean we are conditioned we are taught we are framed by society which brings a whole bunch of implications you know people like this are people who look like that are people who talk like this are um and you know there are some grains of truth in those generalizations um but that's where we come back to critical thinking as a really useful skill just understanding when i'm carrying a generalization and understanding as i meet an individual that i don't know anything um i will try like neurologically i will try to fill in the blanks um, because it's really hard to maintain like an open space of not knowing yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and actually, I'm curious uh, if you can give like specific examples where you have saw that you've made a change uh, in the way you ask questions. Like you mentioned one, but maybe um, if there is something that comes in your mind with those layers that you have peeled, or if you can mention the layers, that would be interesting for me to know. Um, yeah, I mean, most of them are, are around like norms of heterosexuality or cisgender, um, assumptions about, like you said, um, socioeconomics and class. I mean, I can, I can speak about, you know, a personal example is Yes, I'm a master's level educated Anglo white woman, um, except my socioeconomic status is I earn like a stay at home mom in Mexico in pesos who works, you know, eight consulting hours a week with individual clients. And I mean, sometimes those hours are pro bono with a local convent. Mm. Um, so, I mean, people make a lot of assumptions that because they see me doing projects and organizing things mm. that I have a stable economic base or that these projects are lucrative for me and they're not. <laughs> so, you know, if you interview me again in a few years, maybe I will have figured out money, but right now I have not. And people assume they're like, Oh yeah, why don't you come up and do this workshop? I'm like, um, cause I can't afford the bus ticket to get to the airport, to get to the course that I can't afford for the hotel that I can't afford to stay in um so they're like oh you don't have money i'm like no <laughs> i do not have money um so that's just a, a personal example of things that i've noticed that people assume very easily about me and it's like 
it's a it's a pretty big assumption and so i'm aware that i make some of those very large assumptions mm. um and so there are some things that i don't ask you know i don't ask people where they're from mm. i've learned that that is especially in the us you know a very rude question mm. um because it's just emphasizing the oh you're not from here mm-hmm. um and then I guess I would make some kind of meaning of whatever that person's origin story is. Um, so I don't ask. That's one of the questions I do not ask. Um, I just let people define themselves in their own terms. And if they want to talk about gender, sexuality, relationship status, if they want to talk about their social or economic status, I let the person define themselves. And sometimes I sit very uncomfortably with things that are not mentioned, Mm -hmm. but I don't push them into the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am speaking like in a short interview kind of context. Yeah. 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 And I'm curious, yeah, talking about this authority and now you mentioned money and I'm always curious because as I say from the outside I am really highly impressed by what you're doing and I almost like is this feeling of I really want her to continue doing it and um, and it's all these kind of things is how do you fuel uh, your passions with a limited um, uh, economical space let's say it like this yeah, if I had a job, it would really get in the way of doing these things. Um, but I mean, right now, and this year of interviews has been done from different rooms in my home with my kids with me, and the kids are home because there's no in-person school because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I'm with my kids, like, on average, like, 18 to 20 hours a day. <laughs> um, so, working and dedicating my energy to something else that would be more lucrative is not really an option right now. And I'm okay with that. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really interested in going out and getting a job. I mean, you asked about success and things like that. I'm really not particularly interested. Um, If I can find things to do that also, you know, give me some income, that's a privilege, that would be lovely. Um, I would be grateful for that, but I'm not really seeking that as a priority. Um, I think I find reward in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and um, can I ask, because it's just a curious thing for me, what did the time spending with your kids so much give to you? What are the kind of discoveries or triggers or anything else to fill in the blank that this time has brought for you? Um, I mean, my parenting philosophy has been pretty gestalt from the beginning. It's like, I don't know who this kid is. I'd like to get to know them. Um, So it's just been a, a really cool experience of getting to know each of my children um and i mean i i apply that to my three children like this year it's been with the two who are still living right 
Um, but just getting to know my kids and spending time with them. I mean, that, that's, that was the thing that I learned uh, with the death of my daughter was that I was satisfied with our relationship. I did not feel like I'd missed out on her life mm -hmm. or the opportunity to be with her um, because I didn't prioritize, you know, running around and getting a job and making money and whatever, um, which is not, I mean, that was a privilege to be able to choose not to do it. Um, but I'm, I'm more in the being, you know, this is like what, this is the being and doing podcast. I'm more in the being than the doing. It's like, I'm, I'm satisfied with the quality of our being. Um, and we've been able to, you know, there's like some education, emotional education going on where we can be like, ah, I'm frustrated and we can yell and we understand what drives each other crazy about what we do. Um, but I, I think that's, you know, that's been healthy and it's been useful. Um, I feel like we know each other. So that's probably and I'm curious, satisfying. when you when you see your kids as, as these different people, they are having their own different worlds. Um, how do you explore those worlds? How do you how do you kind of again in this kind of how are you nicely curious about them? I don't, um, I don't know. <laughs> I let them talk. I ask them things. Um, I don't, again, I don't push myself in. I don't assume that I get to take up space in their worlds. Mm -hmm. um, like my daughter is very much in the, mom, I want a thing to do a thing. Like I want more paint because I'm doing a mural and close the door. So it's like I walk up, I put the paint at the door, and then I walk away. <laughs> like I don't assume that I get to go in and be part of the process because I'm not being invited. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of like the Laura Pearl's idea of offering as much support as necessary and as little as possible. Mm -hmm. Like not making myself a force in their lives, but just kind of being there. I mean, I, I don't know, when I was listening to the interviews, I felt that mother, motherly touch from you. And I, I just felt it's something that is for me to strive for. for. Uh, I, and that's why I'm asking all of these questions. It's just kind of trying to understand where is this coming from? This really beautiful non-intrusiveness, but like absolute self-awareness of who you are, your qualities, your being, and what makes you tick as well. Um, well, when I said I had to learn social skills, I mean, these are the social skills that I learned from my therapist, which are qualities of presence. I mean, it's like loving acceptance. I didn't know much about that. Um, not to say that I received the opposite or anything. It's just... I was not aware, I didn't understand what that was. And so I've learned how the people who are significantly present with me are present. I'm like, oh, okay, it's like reverse engineering. It's like, oh, okay, I get what you're doing there. And then I put it back together in my house. It's like, oh, okay. So I actually don't do that, that, or that. So the absence of those invasive, demanding impositions, oh, so then what am I doing? It's like loving, supportive presence. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and then I wanted to um, ask you to, like, what are the tools, um, like one probably is therapy, that you are using to play with your awareness and to explore these kind of um, uh, concepts, like interaction, contact, or, um, yeah, just life. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's presence. I mean, basically, that's it. Like, Gestalt is all about, you know, full presence. And so, I mean, I, I, I was saying, sounds kind of like a contradiction, but there's things about myself that I, I don't leave out, that I bracket. Um, but I'm really fully present and available. And it's just like, oh, I'm going to bring this out. And oh, look, I've got this. I don't know. It's... Yeah, it's more it's just I'm, presence. It's just being there. It's showing up. I mean, I guess that being there and showing up also has to happen for yourself as well before it happens for others. Also. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the thing that I can't not, I can't turn it off. Like, that's just the intensity. It's just when I show up, it's usually I can be really intense and like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> no. Yeah, the, the intensity is just like a basic thing for me. And I, I'm uh, wondering, were you, were you yourself sometimes afraid of that intensity or you just became aware of it when people started reacting towards you? Um, specifically in two you know, partner relationships that I had, I realized that I just can't turn it off. Um, and that if it's not going to be workable in a relationship, then I just need to leave that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, this is sort of like, yeah, this is how I work. This is who I am. Um, so basically for me to turn myself off, to make the other person comfortable, uh, that's just not possible. Because I mean, I can sit there and be quiet for a little while, but that doesn't mean that I'm not still experiencing things it's just a matter of time um, I'm really not good at tolerance sometimes mm -hmm. that's just like being aware that something is not working and pretending that I can be okay with that for a while I'm not good at tolerance uh, so yeah I just I like to be places where I can be myself um, and uh, I'm I'm curious in that um being yourself is that something that again felt like a place where you really need to explore and peel off uh layers or it was something that you know you knew but it took time to also allow yourself to show to others um I think there's like an essence, there's like an existential, this is me. Um, and I, I can feel that's like feeling centered or feeling grounded. Um, I've learned it's also about having my nervous system settled and not being like in some kind of reactive post-traumatic state, um, but like actually being me. That, that's pretty consistent. I mean, I, I can tell when I'm coming up to something where it's like, yeah, not me. 
Mm. It's a me, not me boundary. Mm. Mm. And I'm now going to go to like the kind of small rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is what is a book or a present or a, an idea that you like to give to people? Um, there's a book on gifted adults. I like to give that to gifted adults who may not remember that they're gifted or may never have known. But it's usually like the people like I've given it to several clients where they're just like, ah, the world is so frustrating and I don't make sense. And what's wrong with me? I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just gifted and you haven't figured that out yet. So. And what's the name? It's called Gifted Adults? Gifted Adults. The author is? I don't know. It's back here somewhere. <laughs> Gifted Adult, a revolutionary guide for liberating everyday genius. Okay. Kind of a pretentious title, but yeah, it's about, it's by Mary Elaine Jacobson. And I'm curious because I re just realized there was one thing I missed. So I know Helen as, uh, sorry, Heather, uh, as a Gestalt therapist, as a mother. Is there other things that you identify yourself with, you're doing or are part of your life? Uh not really. <laughs> I like to, I like to cook, but that's like a creative, you know, hunger and aggression process. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, that's what I do these days. And I just kind of expand it all under, ooh, new project, new thing, new toy, new idea. But it's, yeah, it creative up. process. But it, it comes, it's all kind of Gestalt oriented. Like, like I said, Gestalt is really stretchy. So I still yes. feel like I can fit a whole bunch of things in that without breaking the bag. So yeah, that's true. That's true. And actually, uh, in, in terms of creation and in all of these projects, uh, how does fear play a role for you there? Do you have it and you still do it? Or do you don't have it at all? Or... Uh, yeah, I'm pretty dumb about fear. I usually don't realize that I should have been afraid of something and that I probably could have died. <laughs> but uh, I don't notice that until later. Um, okay. Yeah. And uh, then one thing which uh, I really find always an interesting answer is what is an absurd thing about you that not many people know about? An absurd thing about me... Uh, I don't know. My life is pretty absurd. <laughs> that's that's one of my favorite words. I mean, just yeah, uh, everything is absurd about me. None of it makes sense. None of it has meaning. It's all that's like the existential clown part of me. It's like it's all absurd. Is there a part of me that is not absurd? I don't think so. Yeah, as I said, like the the answers are always. So wide ranging, and I love that yours is again completely out layer. Very <laughs> yes, yeah. really nice. And um, what compliments, if any, do you like to receive? 
um, yeah, my compliments are not so like ego driven about like my competency. A lot of people are like, oh, wow, you're so good at doing this. And I'm like, thank you. But that's usually about things that I do. So those ones are a little less comfortable. Um, I think the most backhanded compliments that I get are like, wow, you're actually nice. <laughs> like, what the fuck do you mean? What do I mean? I'm actually nice. Like, I don't come across that way or... And I, that I've learned means that someone has actually taken like a step in and feel like they've gotten to know me and are appreciating something about me or rather than just some... seeing. Yeah. Or they've gone past the assumption that, you know, like I'm pushy or demanding or invasive or bossy or whatever. Controlling is another big one. And they're like, Oh, you're actually nice. Yeah. Instead of being some crazy control freak. So. Yeah. And uh, the last one would be, which are the things that have uh, become more and which less important to you uh, with age? Um, sleep. <laughs> sleep has become important. Um, sorry, you can hear them in the background. My dogs are becoming more important because they're keeping me company these days. Um, connection. Doing things is for the sake of doing things or achieving something is so much less important. Um, like I think I can finally learn something because I can just admit that I'm curious and I want to learn stuff mm -hmm. and I don't have to do it in a structured way and follow a course to get a paper at the end. Um, like the masters in bioethics, that's on hold. I just wanted to learn stuff. Like I don't need to push myself through a system or a structure to get a quantifiable result. Like I can really enjoy process a lot more. Yeah. And I like that about quantifiable results. It's, it's also like, there are so many things that, and even about Gestalt therapy, I talked about this with Peter is it's not, it's not easily quantifiable in terms of what the output of the therapy is, mm -hmm. uh, but all of us that are part of this, we just deeply feel that it's effective. And, and somehow I realized that there are some things in life we just cannot put numbers on. And there's almost this kind of obsession um, to put numbers on, 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 on life in a way. So I really appreciate what you brought in with the sentence of, of learning. Yeah, I'm more interested in something that's meaningful rather than something that's quantifiable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although that's a big thing to unpack, but I think as a, as, as a, as a, yeah, as a concept is very, something I feel very related to. So with this, I actually, um, I would, I would kind of close and there's always one last thing I ask, which is, is there something you would like to ask yourself in the sense of like, uh, it's always, of course, a very one-sided mirror that I am to you. And I'm always curious, what is it that I'm missing again from my biases that I haven't asked? Um, no, I think I'm 
pretty good at bringing forward what I'm interested in bringing in. So I don't feel like there's anything undone. So thank you. So I would just like to ask you to also share with people where can they find you um, and then where can they find the channel and how can they contribute if they can and all these kind of things. Um, well, you can find me in a few different places. Um, I've learned not to put all my eggs in one basket anymore. <laughs> um, so there's Humans of Gestalt, which is humansofgestalt.com, uh, which is where you can find the podcasts and the YouTube channel, just Google Humans of Gestalt. Um, you can find me interviewing like, I don't know, 180 people at this point, I think. There's tons of interviews on the channel. Um, my own website is heatherannkeys.com. Um, what else? I'm also, you know, the other major project that I sort of home myself in is the Mexican Gestalt Psychotherapy Association, which is gestaltmexico.org. Uh, that one's in Spanish. Most of our projects are in Spanish. They're all, it's a, it's a not-for-profit uh, professional development organization. So it's all about continuing activity for Gestalt therapists and hopefully will evolve into um, a kind of a job bank mm -hmm. to create uh, actual intervention projects, not like a clinic, but intervention projects from a Gestalt perspective um, around social issues and community issues in Mexico. Um, yeah, you can usually, you know, find me sitting at home in front of my computer doing stuff, talking to random strangers. So. <sighs> And that's where I find you. And so thank you so much for that, actually. Yeah, thank you. You have just heard the story of Heather Ann Keys, a Canadian-born Gestalt psychotherapist. She is an acclaimed speaker and workshop leader on topics of humor and resilience, intercultural practice and grief work. She is also the co-founder of the Humans of Gestalt Project, a conference interpreter, and is the founder of the Open Gestalt Project. If you want to connect with her, you can visit her webpage www.heatherandkeys.com. Thank you for joining me on this journey and I hope to see you coming along again.